Chapters one through five of Kathleen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Kathleen by Christopher Morley. Chapter one. The Scorpions were to meet at eight o'clock, and before that hour, Kenneth Forbes had to finish the first chapter of a serial story the literary society named in accordance with the grotesque whim of oxford undergraduates consisted of eight members and it was proposed that each one should contribute a chapter forbes was of a fertile wit and he had been nominated the first operator he had been allowed the whole christmas vacation to prepare his opening chapter which was why on this first sunday of term while the rest of merton college was at dinner hall he sat at his desk desperately driving his pen across the paper forbes room in fellows quad was one of those that housed queen henrietta maria in sixteen forty three and though forbes own tastes were nondescript the chamber still had something of an air the dark wood panelling might well have done honour to a royal lodger and a motion picture producer would have coveted it as a background for mary pickford it was unspoiled by pictures two or three political maps of europe sketchily drawn with coloured crayons were pinned up here and there the room was a typical oxford apartment dark a little faded but redeemed by the grate of glowing coals behind the chimney two recessed seats looked out over the college gardens long red curtains were drawn to shut out the winter droughts it was true english january driving squalls of rain dampness and devastating chill the east wind brought the booming toll from magdalen tower very distinctly to the ear followed closely by the tinny chime in fellows quad it was half-past seven forbes laid down his pen looked quizzically at the last illegible line slanting up the paper and realized he was hungry his untasted tea and anchovy toast still stood in the fender where the scout had put them three hours before he switched on the electric light over the dining-table in the centre of the room and dropping on the sofa before the fire prodded the huge lumps of soft coal into a blaze the triangular slices of anchovy toast were cold but still very good he devoured them with appetite he lit a cigarette with a sigh of content and reflected that he had not crossed his name off hall therefore he must pay eighteen pence for dinner even though he had not eaten it also there lay somewhat heavily upon his mind the fact that at ten the next morning he must read to his tutor an essay on danton and robespierre an essay as yet unwritten that would mean a very early rising and uncomfortable chilly session in the college library a dismal place in the forenoon never mind first came a jolly evening with the scorpions the meetings were always fun and this one coming after the separation of six weeks vacation promised special sport carter was down for a paper on rabelais king would have some of his amusing ballads and rondeaux and above all there would be the first chapter of the serial from which the members promised themselves much diversion it was too late now to attempt anything on danton and robespierre he picked up a volume of belloc and sat cosily by the fire a thumping tread sounded on the winding stairs then a faint click of a large metal tray laid on the serving-table outside and a muffled knock at the oak the thick outer door which forbes had sported when he came in at six to write his stint he unfastened the barrier and admitted hinton the scout 
who bore in a tray of edibles ordered by forbes from the college storeroom for the refreshment of his coming guests forbes like most men of modest means made a point of honour to entertain lavishly when it was his turn as host and the display set out by hinton made an attractive still life under the droplight a big bowl of apples and oranges stood in the centre tin boxes from huntley and palmer a couple of large iced cakes raisins nuts and a dish of candied fruits ended the solids there was also a tray of coffee cups and a huge silver pot bearing the college arms flanked by a porcelain jug of hot milk derizinski cigarettes whiskey and soda and a new tin of john cotton smoking mixture completed the spread which would be faithfully reflected in forbes battles or weekly bills later on young men at oxford do themselves well and this was a typical layout for an undergraduate evening hinton a ruddy old man with iron-gray hair and very red bulby nose was a garrulous servant and after a tentative cough made an attempt at small talk i didn't see you at all tonight, sir no said forbes i had some writing to do hinton oh yes sir said hinton according to the invariable formula of college servants a moment later after another embarrassed cough he began again very wet night sir they say the towpath will be under water in another day or so forbes was not a rowing man and the probable submerging of the towpath was not news that affected him one way or the other his only reply was to ask the scout to refill the coal scuttle for this task hinton donned an old pair of gloves and carried in several large lumps of coal in his hands from the bin outside then he disappeared into the adjoining room to pour out a few gallons of very cold water into forbes hip bath to turn down the sheets lay out his pajamas and remove a muddy pair of boots to be cleaned such are the customs that make sweet the lives of succeeding undergraduates at oxford it is pleasant to know that palmerston pitt gladstone asquith they have all gone through the old routine forbes father had occupied the very same rooms thirty years before and very likely old hinton then a scout's boy had blackened his boots certainly forbes senior had lain in the same bedroom and watched magdalen tower through the trees while delaying to get up on chilly mornings anything else tonight, sir said hinton as forbes put down belloc and began to clean a very crusty briar nothing tonight. thank you sir said hinton and took his departure after poking up the fire and removing the dead tea-things the eight o'clock chime spoke as hinton clumped downstairs and a few moments later forbes guests began to straggle in all were wet and ruddy from rain and wind and as they discarded raincoats and caps disclosed a pleasant medley of types the scorpions was a rather recent and informal society but it had gathered from various colleges a little band of temperamental congenials who found a unique pleasure in their sunday evening meetings none of them was of the acknowledged literary successes of the university their names were not those seen every week in the undergraduate journals and yet this obscure group which had drawn together in the spirit of satire had in it two or three men of real gift forbes himself was a man of uncommon vivacity small stocky with an unruly thatch of yellow hair and a quaintly wry and homely face he hid his shyness and his brilliancy behind a brusque manner ostensibly cynical and witty satirist of his more sentimental fellows his desk was full of charming ballads and pieces de more scratched off at white heat in odd moments his infinite fun of full-flavoured jest had won him the nickname of priapus 
but beneath the uncouth exterior of the man behind his careless dress and humorously assumed coarseness lay the soul of a poet sensitive as a girl and devout before the whisperings of beauty stephen carter and randall king were first to arrive and seized the ends of the fireside couch while forbes poured their coffee a clark russell of an evening said carter stretching his golfing brogues to the blaze don't you love a good drenching downpouring night i do he was a burly full-blooded blonde extravagantly facetious in convivial moments and a mournful brooder in solitude king better known as the goblin was a dark whimsical elf in thick spectacles much loved in the varsity dramatic society for his brilliant impersonations the goblin said nothing as he sipped his coffee and gazed at the fire there you go again falstaff exclaimed forbes to carter as he unlocked a corner cupboard and drew out a bottle of port the universal enthusiast i believe you'll be enthusiastic about the examiners that plough you what falstaff get ploughed said a vast and rather handsome newcomer flinging open the door without knocking i think he's down for a ruddy first this was douglas whitney of balliol carter's only answer to both these remarks was to drain a glass of the port which forbes was decanting i say priapus what vile port he said is this some of the vintage you crocked old poor hinden with any port in a storm falstaff said the goblin mildly as forbes was pouring out coffee shouts of minters greeted the next arrival this was johnny blair of tennessee and trinity the only american among the scorpions blair was a rhodes scholar whose dual-set southern growl and quaint modes of speech were a constant delight to his english comrades his great popularity in his own college was begun by his introduction of mint julep which had given him his nickname hello minters cried forbes what cheer large tabling and belly cheer said blair quoting his favorite elizabethan author by the time forbes had poured out eight cups of coffee and as many glasses of wine keith graham and twiston had come in making the full gathering there was much laughing and banter as the men stood round the table or by the fire, lighting pipes and cigarettes, and helping themselves to fruit and cake. Finally, when everyone was settled in in a semicircle around the fire, Ford hammered his coffee cup with a spoon. According to the custom of the society, the host of the evening always acted as chairman. "'The meeting will please come to order,' said Forbes. "'Brother Scorpions, what is your pleasure? Has the secretary anything to report?' the gatherings of the scorpions were pleasingly devoid of formality and untrammelled by parliamentary conventions there were no minutes and the only officer was a secretary who sent out postal cards each week reminding the members of the time and place of the next meeting king puffing happily at a large pipe declared that no official business required attention then i call upon falstaff for his delightful paper on rabelais said forbes a small electric reading lamp was propped behind carter's head and the scorpions disposed themselves to listen carter pulled an untidy manuscript from his pocket and after an embarrassed cough began to read the general tenor of an undergraduate essay on rabelais intended for the intimacy of a fireside circle may readily be guessed the general thesis of the composition was of course to prove that rabelais was by no means the low-minded old dog of puritan conception or as carter put it that he was not simply a george moore but that his amazing writings bore witness throughout to a high and devoted ethical purpose 
it is even conjecturable that carter may have said puribus omina pura but if he did so it was with so droll an accent that his audience laughed again at all events his reading was punctuated with cheery applause and at the conclusion the scorpions renewed their acquaintance with those historic affinities whiskey and soda discussion was brisk the meditative goblin was then called upon for his poems and after becoming hesitation unfolded a sheaf of verses his rhymes were always full of quaint and elvish humour which was very endearing his ballad with the refrain when harry bailey kept the tabard in was voted the best of the six he read but the event of the evening was to be the serial story which forbes had been appointed to begin a new round of refreshments was distributed and then the host took his place under the reading lamp this needs a word of explanation he said having the whole vacation to work on this naturally i did nothing until tea-time this afternoon i didn't even have an idea in my head until yesterday about four o'clock yesterday afternoon i was strolling down the broad in desperation you know when there's some hateful task that has to be done one will snatch at any pretext for postponing it i stopped at blackwell's to look for a book i wanted up in one corner of the shop laying on a row of books i found this impressively he drew from his pocket a double sheet of notepaper and held it up it was a letter evidently written by some girl to a man at the varsity finding it there forgotten and defenseless i could not resist reading it it was a very charming letter but not too intimate but full of a delicious virgin coyness and reserve then a great idea struck me why not take the people mentioned in the letter and use them as characters for our story we know that they are real people we know their first names that's all we know about them the rest can be left to the invention of the scorpions generous laughter greeted the idea let's hear the letter cried someone yes said forbes before reading my chapter i'll read you the letter and then remember that our story is to be built up solely upon this document there are to be no characters in the story except those mentioned in the letter and our task must be to delineate them in such a way that they are in keeping with the suggestions the letter gives us here it is x x x these are from fred three eighteen bancroft road wolverhampton october thirtieth nineteen twelve dear joe thank you so much for the tie it is pretty and i do wear ties sometimes so i shan't let the boys have it you must think me rather ungrateful for not writing before but i have been out the last two evenings and have had no time for letters yesterday mother and i went to brimmingham as i had my half-term holiday i hope you managed to get some tea after writing to me otherwise i shall feel so grieved to think i was the cause of your starvation by the way i read your latest poem and i don't like it not that that will trouble you much i'm sure the idea isn't at all bad but that's all i like about it i haven't a bit of news and i've just found out it is too late to catch the post tonight so you will have to wait a little longer for this precious letter it will be precious won't it charlie has just come home from his class so i must bring his food to him daddy's lumbago is better i'm glad to say good night and many thanks i remain yours kathleen excuse this scrawl but the pen's groggy a moment of silence followed the reading of the letter joe's a lucky boy said whitney she's a darling the letter doesn't tell us much said forbes as he handed it around for examination but more than you might think 
Before writing my chapter, I summarized the data. Here they are. 1. Joe. He's a member of the Varsity who writes poetry. Either it's published in some magazine, or he sends it privately to her. The blighter has sent Kathleen a tie of some kind, probably a scarf with his college or club colors. He's got as far as the plaintive stage. He tells her that he's going without his tea just to write to her. Probably a half a dozen crumpets and four cups of tea were simmering inside of him as he wrote. So much for Joe. I'll wager he's a Rhodes Scholar. 2. Kathleen. I put her at seventeen, and, as Whitney says, she is a darling. She's at school still. She's adorably sane. She doesn't care for Joel's yowling poetry. Probably he writes Verlaine kind of stuff, or free verse, or some blither of that sort. She has younger brothers, the boys, and she helps her mother run the house. I think she likes Joe better than she cares to admit. See the touch of coquettishness where she says, It will be precious, won't it? And how adorably she teases him in those four crossed marks. These are from Fred. Gad, I'm jealous of Joe already. 3. Fred. I think he's the older brother, probably recently left the varsity, a friend of Joe's, perhaps. 4. Charlie is one of the younger brothers. He goes to some kind of night school or gymnasium. Probably an ugly little beggar. Why doesn't he get his food for himself? 5. The mother. I don't know anything about her, except that she went to Birmingham with Kathleen. 6. The father. Has lumbago. One thing you don't mention, said Graham. It's an easy run from here to Wolverhampton on a motorbike. Rather a sell if Joe should turn out a boxing blue and mash us all into pulp for bagging his letter, said Whitney. There was a general laugh at this. Whitney was over six feet, rode number five in the Balliol boat, and he was nicknamed the Iron Duke for his muscular strength. Go on with your chapter, Priapus, said the goblin. Chapter 2 when Forbes had finished, there was a general laughter and applause. The whimsical idea of building a tale around the persons of the letter was one which his playful mind was competent to develop, and he had written a deft and amusing introduction. Taking Joe as his subject, he had sketched that gentleman's character with a touch of irony. He had made him a Rhodes Scholar from Indiana, evoking good-nature protests from minsters, and had carried him on a vacation to Guilford House a small hotel in London much frequented by Rhodes Scholars. There he had made him meet Kathleen, who, with her mother, was staying in London for a few days. Forbes had a taste for brunettes, and in his description of the imagined Kathleen he had indulged himself heartily. He found her to be seventeen, slender, with that strong slimness that only an English girl achieves, with a straight brown gaze and abundant dark chestnut hair. She was captain of her school hockey team, it seemed. She was good at tennis and swimming and geometry. She had small patience with poetry and sentiment. But within the athletic and straightforward flapper, Forbes thought he saw the fluttering of a deeper womanhood, the maiden soul erecting a barrier of abrupt common sense about itself to conceal the shy and sensitive feelings that were beginning to blossom. Such, at any rate, was Kenneth Forbes' psychoanalysis and he developed his chapter toward a climax where Kathleen and Joe were left walking in Regent's Park, and the next author would find some difficulty in knowing how to proceed with the second installment. "'Well done, indeed!' cried Blair, as Forbes laid down his manuscript and reached for his pipe. There was a general murmur of assent as the men got up to stretch and talk. 
Someone punched the coals into flame, and the bowl of fruit was passed round. "'Who's to write the next chapter?' asked Graham. "'Let Falstaff do it,' cried Blair. "'He's the sentimentalist. But go easy on poor Joe. You know all Rhodes scholars don't come from Indiana. Have a heart.' "'Do whatever you like to Joe,' cried Forbes. "'But be careful with Kathleen. She's adorable. I'm going to write a ballad to her and mail it to her anonymously.' "'I wish there was some way to get hold of her picture,' said Keith. "'Her picture?' said Graham. "'Nonsense. Why not see the flapper herself? I'm going to bike over there on my rouge, herb around till I find the street, and then skid like hell right into her doorstep. I shall lie there in mute agony until I'm carried indoors.' "'I say, now, that's no fair,' cried Forbes. "'I discovered her. Just because you've got a motorbike, you mustn't take an advantage.' "'Look here,' said the goblin, mildly speaking from a blue cloud of Murray's mixture. "'We must all sign a protocol, or a mandamus, or a lanyap, or whatever you lawmen call it, not to steal a march. I think we'd all like to meet the real Kathleen. But we must give a bond to start fair and square, and nobody do anything that isn't authorized by the whole club.' "'Right-o!' cried several voices. "'All right, then,' said the goblin. Fill glasses, everyone, and will solemnize the oath. Brother Scorpions, I do you to wit that we all, jointly and severally, promise not to take any steps toward making the acquaintance of said Kathleen, until so authorized by the whole society. So help me God. They all drank to this with some chuckles. What a lark if we could get Kathleen down for eights week, said someone. Very likely Joe will have her here, said Whitney. You seem to forget that he's been rowing this course for some time. They all scowled. I wonder how many members of the varsity are called Joe, Keith asked. About three hundred, I dare say, said Falstaff. I tell you what we might do, said Forbes. When the yarn's finished, we can send it to her, explain just how the whole thing happened, and ask permission to call. She's got a sense of humor, I'll swear. Balmy, retorted Falstaff. She'd probably be frightened fed because you bagged her letter. It's a hell of a thing to do, crib a lady's letter. It's a hell of a thing to do to leave it lying around, cried Forbes, impentient. No quarter for Joe bags. Let the punishment fit the crime. Well, you chaps, I've got to sheer off, said Whitney. It's nearly eleven, and I've got an essay on the stocks. Cheer o, Pyropus. I've had a ripping time. Arfamo, cried Forbes. Who's to do the next chapter, and where do we meet next week? Falstaff, said several voices. Why not do two chapters a week, said Carter. I'll do one, and Goblin can do another. Let's meet in my rooms. This was agreed to, and after much scuffling with great coats and scarves, the guests tramped off down the stairs and out into the rainy quad. Forbes could hear them a minute later, thundering with their heels on the huge iron-studded college gate, as they waited for the porter to let them out. The room was foul with smoke, and he opened a window over the gardens, letting in a gush of chill, sweet air and rain. Through the darkness he could hear many chimes, counting eleven. He looked wearily at the scribbled notes for his essay on Danton and Robespierre, then shrugged his shoulders and went to bed. CHAPTER Three. By the time that Carter and King had written their chapters and read them out loud, the Scorpions were frankly adorers of Kathleen. By midterm she had become an obsession. Eric Twiston and Bob Graham, doing a cornstalk, as walking on a corn market street is elegantly termed, they were wont to dub any really delightful girl they saw as a Kathleen sort of person. 
at the annual dinner of the club which took place in a private dining-room at the clary the clarendon hotel in february forbes was called upon to respond to the toast the real kathleen his voice tremulous with emotion and absent frappe nearly failed him but he managed to stammer a few phrases which thought at the time to be extemporaneous called forth a loud applause but it was found later that he had jotted them down on the tablecloth during the soup and fish courses fellow scorpers he said i mean you chaps look here i'm not much at this dispatch box business but um i want to say that i regard kathleen with feelings of iridescent emotion i feel sure she is a pronounced brunette and that the blue flapper we all use see at the east ochre is nowhere i've been playing lacquers lacrosse this term i give you my word that when i've been bloody well done in and had an absolute needle of funk i had only to think of kathleen to buck me up hum now gentlemen you may think i'm drunk loud cries of no but i want to say in truth and soberness that any man who thinks he's got kathleen for a bondwoman has me to reckon with this applause at his speech was so immoderate that a party of boston ladies dining with a chautauqua lecturer in the clarendon's main dining-room shuddered and began looking up timetables to stratford by this time the serial story had grown to the length of seven or eight chapters and the scorpions became so engrossed in the fortunes of the kenyons so for convenience they had dubbed kathleen's family that at the dinner a separate health was drunk to each character of the story and one of the members was called upon to reply falstaff carter responded to the toast to joe and recounted his secret investigations into the number of members of the university who bore that name he claimed to have tabulated from the university almanac two hundred and fifty six men so christened and offered to go into the life history of any or all of them he said that he was happy to say that the only joseph who seemed at all likely to be a poet was a scrubby little man at teddy hall who wore spectacles and ragged exhibitioner's gown and did not seem to threaten a serious rivalry to any scorpion bent upon supplanting him i also find he added that the master of the new college and magdalen beagles is called joe he is a member of the bowlingdon and if he is the cheese it's distinctly mooters whether any of the scorpions have a ghostly show but i vote gentlemen that we don't crock at this stage of the game it was decided at the dinner that during the ensuing easter vacation the scorpion should make a trip to wolverhampton in mass for the purpose of picketing bancroft road and finding out what kathleen was really like and then after singing langers and godders old lang syne and god save the king the meeting broke up and the members dispersed darkly in various directions to avoid the proctors chapter four friday the fifteenth of march was the last day of the term the scorpions busy in their various ways with the hundred details that have to be attended to before going down were all pleasantly excited by the anticipation of their quest which was to begin on the morrow carter shaking hands with the warden of new college in the college hall a pleasant little formality performed at the end of each term absent-mindedly replied wolverhampton when the warden asked him where he was going to spend vacation he was then hard put to avoid a letter of introduction to the vicar of st philip's in that city an old pupil of the warden king bicycling rapidly down the greasy turl with an armful of books collided vigorously with another cyclist at the corner of the high they both sprawled on the curb bikes interlocked my god sir 
cried the goblin. Why not watch where you're going? Then he saw it was Johnny Blair. Sorry, goblin, said the latter. I, I was thinking about Kathleen. So was I, said King, picking up his books, and in defiance of the university statute of 1636, still unrepealed, which warned students against frequenting dicing houses, taverns, or booths where the nicotian herb is sold. They went into Hedderley's together to buy tobacco. After breakfast the next morning, they were all in cabs on their way to the great western station. It was a mild and sunny day, with puffs of spring in the air. Who can ever forget the Saturday morning at the end of term when men go down? Long lines of hansom spinning briskly toward the station, with bulging portamentos on the roof, the wide sunny sweep of the broad, with the bus trundling past Trinity gates, a knot of tall youths in varsity uniform of grey, bags, and brown tweed Norfolk smoking and talking at the Balliol Lodge, and over it all the clang of a hundred chimes, the grey fingers of a thousand spires and pinnacles, the moist blue sky of England. Ah, it is the palace of youth, or it was once. The scorpions met on the dingy north-bound platform. Graham, Keith, and Twiston had been obliged to scratch owing to other more imperative plans, but five members boarded the ten o'clock train in high spirits—Forbes, Carter, King, Blair, and Whitney. They filled a third-class smoker with tobacco and jest. "'Now, Goblin!' cried Falstaff, as the train ran past the Port Meadow and the Radcliffe Dome, dropped from view. "'Open those sealed orders. You promised to drop the rules of the game.' King pulled a paper from his pocket. "'I jotted down some points,' he said. "'This is the time to discuss them.' Rules to be observed by the Scorpions on the Great Kathleen Excursion. 1. The headquarters of the expedition will be the Blue Boar Inn at Wolverhampton. I've written them to engage rooms. 2. The Kriegspiel we begin today at 2 p.m., and maneuvers will continue without intermission until someone is declared the winner, or until time is called. 3. The object of the contest is to make acquaintance of Kathleen to engage her in friendly conversation, to win her confidence, and to induce her to accept an invitation to Comum or Eights Week. 4. Any deceptions, strategy, or tactics which are not calculated to give intolerable distress or embarrassment to Kathleen and her family are allowable. 5. If by noon on Tuesday no one shall have exceeded in making friends with Kathleen, the game shall be declared off. Suppose she's not at home, said Whitney. We'll have to chance that. What time do we get there? I've ordered lunch at the Blue Boar at one o'clock. This train gets to Wolvers at twelve-thirty. It was a merry ride. The story of Kathleen, as they had written it, was discussed pro and con. The usual protests were launched at Carter for having in his chapter lowered the theme to the level of burlesque. Praise was accorded to the goblin for the dexterity with which he had rescued the plot. Blair's chapter had been full of American slang which had to be explained to the others. Joe, the Rhodes Scholar hero, had shown a vein of fine gold under Blair's hands. He bade farewell to win the charming Kathleen. Although the story had not been finished owing to the examinations which had fallen upon the Brotherhood toward the end of term, the game begun in poor jest had taken on something of romantic earnestness. There was not one of these young men who did not see in Kathleen his own ideal of slender, bright-cheeked, girlhood. And when the train pulled into Wolverhampton, they tumbled out of their smoking carriage with keen expectation. CHAPTER Five, 
perhaps the best way to pursue the next episodes in the quest is in the words of johnny blair the rhodes scholar who jotted down some notes in a journal he kept we got to wolverhampton twelve twenty five ingersoll time had a jolly trip on the train all the scorps laying bets as to who would be the first to meet kathleen i lay low but did some planning didn't want to let these english blighters get ahead of me especially after all the ragging indiana joe got in the story train stopped at Birmingham at noon my tobacco pouch had run empty and i hopped out to buy some murray's at the newsstand saw the prettiest flapper of my life on the platform the real english type tweed suit dark hair gray eyes and cheeks like almond blossoms she had on a blue tambo shanter loveliest figure i ever saw perfect ankle the usual heavy brogues on her feet why do english girls always wear woolen stockings was so taken with her i almost missed the train she got into a third-class compartment further up the train the others were all bickering in the smoking carriage so they didn't see her i scored over the rest of the crowd when we got to wolvers they'd all brought heavy portmanteaus containing all their vacation baggage my idea was to go light when chasing the grail i had only my rucksack left rest of my stuff at coal to be forwarded later while other chaps were getting their stuff out of the goods van i spotted miss flapper getting off the train she got into a hansom just by dumb luck i was standing near i heard her say to cabby three eighteen bancroft road lord was i tickled i kept mum most of the fellows took cabs on account of their luggage but goblin and i hoofed it wolverhampton seems a dingy place for kathleen to live fine old church though and lovely marketplace we kept our eyes open for bancroft road but saw no sign when we got to the blue boar lunch was all ready for us in the coffee-room landlord tickled to death at our arrival wonderful cheddar cheese and archdeacon ale we made quite a ceremony of it all drank to kathleen's health and on the stroke of two we got up from the table all the others beat it off immediately in different directions looking for bancroft road i expect i had an idea that more finesse would be needed i started off with the others then pretended i had left my pipe and came back to the boar i was going to look up the town directory to find kathleen's name knowing the address that would be easy but there was goblin doing the same thing we both laughed and looked it up together the name 318 bancroft road was kent philip kent f s a a fellow of the society of antiquaries i suppose the book put him down as an antiquarian kathleen's father evidently goblin disappeared in that noiseless way of his and i lit a pipe and pondered the fellows had been full of wild suggestions as to what they would do when they got to 318 bancroft road one was going to be a book agent and get into the house that way another said he would be a grocer's man and make friends with the cook someone else suggested dressing up as a plumber or gas man and going there to fix some imaginary leak knowing that the kents were not fools i imagined it wouldn't be long before they'd get wise to the fact that a bunch of dreadnoughts was picketing the house probably they'd put the police on them also there's nobody harder to disguise than an english varsity man he gives himself away at every turn if fred was around he'd sure to smell a rat one of those chaps would be likely to fake himself up as a plumber and get in the house on some pretext or other still wearing his wrist watch 
I thought it wouldn't be a bad idea to stay away from Bancroft Road for a while and try to pull wires from a distance. The Blue Boar Inn, a very nice old house, by the way, looks out over old Wolverhampton Marketplace. In one corner of the square I had noticed a little post office. You can send a telegram from any post office in England, and I thought that that would be my best entering wedge. The word antiquarian in a directory had given me a notion. On a blank I composed the following message after some revisions. Miss Kathleen Kent, 318 Bancroft Road, Wolverhampton. My friend of John Blair of Trinity, now in Wolverhampton, for historical study, staying at Blue Boar, nice chap, American. May he call on you? If so, send him a line. Sorry can't write, hurt hand playing soccer. Love to all. Joe. This was taking a long chance, but was the best move I could think of. I asked the lady behind the counter to mark the telegram as though it came from Oxford. She said she could not do so, but I happened to have a five-bob piece in my pocket, and that persuaded her. I convinced her that it was a harmless joke. I didn't see that there was anything further to be done immediately. If the telegram brought no word, I should have to think up something else. In the meantime, if I was to pose as an antiquarian investigator, I had better get up some dope on history of Wolverhampton. I poked about until I found a bookshop, where I bought a little pamphlet about the town, and studied the map. Bancroft Road was out toward the northern suburbs. A little talk with the bookseller brought me the information that Mr. Kent was one of his best customers, a pleasant and simple-minded gentleman of sixty, whose only hobby was the history of the region. He had written a book called Memorials of Old Staffordshire, but unfortunately I couldn't get a copy. The bookseller said it was out of print. Then I went to have a look at St. Philip's Church, the fine old Norman pile with some lovely brasses and crusaders' tombs. There I had a piece of luck, fell in with the vicar. One of the jolly old port wine and knickerbocker sort. An old Oxford man, as it happened. I pumped him a little about the history of the church, and in his delight at finding an American who cared for such matters, he talked freely. Why, he kept on saying, with a kind of pathetic enthusiasm, I thought all you Americans were interested in standard oil and tinned beef. Finally he invited me over to the vicarage for tea. As I sat by his fire and ate toasted muffins, I couldn't help chuckling to think how different this was from the other scorpions' plan of attack. They were probably biting their nails up and down Bancroft Road, trying to carry the fort by direct assault. It's amazing how things turn out. Just as I was wondering how to give the conversation a twist in the right direction, the vicar said, If you're really interested in the history of this region, you should certainly have a talk with old Mr. Kent. He's our leading antiquarian, and knows more about the Stour Valley than anyone else. He says there was a skirmish fought here in 1645, that all the books have overlooked. The Battle of Wolverhampton, he calls it. He wrote a little pamphlet about it once. I assured the good parson that my eagerness to know more about the Battle of Wolverhampton was unbounded. I nearly spilled my tea in my excitement. Is that Mr. Kent of 318 Bancroft Road? I asked. Yes, answered the vicar. How did you know? They told me about him at the bookshop. I explained that I was in Wolverhampton for a day or so only. And finally, the excellent man came across with the suggestion I was panting for. Well, he said, as it happens, I have one or two calls to make in that direction this evening. If you care to have me do so, I'll speak to Mr. Kent about you, and he can make an appointment. 
"'You said you were stopping at the Blue Boar?' I thanked him with much warmth, and his eyes twinkled. "'My dear fellow,' he said, "'your enthusiasm does you great credit. I wish you all success in your thesis.' I got back to the Boar, feeling that I had done a very good afternoon's work indeed. End of chapters 1 through 5 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceovers by Kirk.com.